Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Thank you, thank you. Amen. Are you excited to get into God's Word this morning? Good. I'm glad that you're excited. I'm a little nervous and apprehensive about the message that I have to preach today, but it is God's word, and so I need to preach it, and it's, it has the potential to impact our lives in a very positive way. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, before I get into this, this text, because today I'm going to do a lot of background information, probably more than I usually do. Uh, and, and, and that's okay, so don't worry, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm not going to keep you for hours, and if we're, we're doing mostly just digging right now or this week, digging into this passage, we can get to the application next week, but you've got to understand the background of this passage before we just dive into it, okay, because there is, there is the belief that Christians have had a very negative influence on the world today. We kind of sometimes get that reputation, but I would say this, Christians have had more of a profound impact on the world than, than almost anyone would believe. I'll say it again. Christians have had a more profound impact on the world than most anybody would believe. We have impacted the world in amazing ways. Christ followers have done, done things that make this world better. We have been accused, one of the things we've been accused of is minimizing women in We're going to talk about this today. Here's what I want you to know, though. Even though we've been accused of minimizing women, according to the World Economic Forum, nine of the ten best nations on earth for women's rights happen to have majority Christian population. Think about that. I'm going to say it one more time. Nine of the ten best nations on earth for women's rights happen to have majority Christian population. I don't think that's by accident. Today, many people would believe science and faith are incompatible, and yet it was very committed Christians like Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Blaise Pascal, who played key roles in launching the scientific revolution, were committed and devout Christians. In fact, John S. Dickerson, in his, a book that he wrote, said this, nearly every leading university in the world was founded by Christians. Hospitals and formal philanthropy to care for the poor grew largely because of Christians, Christ followers. The most influential abolitionists who worked tirelessly to overcome slavery were committed Christians. Dickerson in his book, I've already referenced his book, but wrote a book in 2019, it's called Jesus Skeptic, a journalist explores the credibility and the impact 
of the Christian world. And I encourage you, if you like to read, go read this book. But this is what he said. Remove Christians from the last 500 years and the evidence suggests we would be much closer to the illiterate average person of the world history. That is, without the Christian-founded norm of public education, the letters on this page of his book would make no sense to us more than they do to a chipmunk. Christianity's had a positive impact on the world today. I know we've got a bad reputation, but I wanted to start out with that, just letting you know that Christ followers have done some pretty incredible things in our world. And I know we live in a time when so many people, they don't trust anything, anything. And I'll be the first to say, Christians have not always been right. We have dropped the ball many times in history. But it appears that we've accomplished a lot more than we thought. In fact, Jesus once told his followers, you're the salt of the earth, but what good is it? What good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Jesus no doubtedly wanted his followers to make the world a better place. And I believe today that because of Christianity, we have made the world better. We've not reached perfection. I am not saying that. But we have improved society. And, and beyond that, I want you to know today that you as a believer can make a difference in this world. You can make a difference in this world. As a Christ follower, you have a call. You have been anointed to make a difference in this world. You have. I should harp on that. I should preach on that for 20 minutes. Now, today I couldn't imagine a more unpopular topic to preach on. I've told you before that I've preached on some really hard topics and that I've probably even said this is the hardest topic I've ever preached on. Well, I lied. Today is that, okay? Especially, especially in our society and our culture today. Pastor J.D. Greer said this about this passage, that this passage ought to have a wick coming out of it by how it makes people blow up. Well, welcome to New Heights if you're new. That's the passage we're going to preach on today, all right? And unfortunately, the passage is usually misunderstood, and it's usually abused. Today, I'm going to rely on the Holy Spirit today to do what I cannot do. It's God's word and therefore needs to be preached. I told you, we don't shy away from hard topics. The Bible needs to be preached, all the Bible. And so we're not going to skip over this part, but instead we're going to dig deep. We're going to trust in God for his results. Now, people today will usually hear anything related to this passage and immediately say, this is foolish. I refuse to believe this. This is nonsense. So what they do is they'll go find a preacher or a teacher who's going to explain away what Peter says here in our passage today. They're going to find excuses to why Peter doesn't really mean what he says. The Bible the Bible calls that something, by the way. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, it's called the suppression of truth. Paul says that there are many who twist scriptures to their own destruction. So, I'm going to start today by reminding everyone in this room of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Basic idea is this. We don't follow Jesus because each issue he teaches makes the most sense to us, but because he is Lord and his word is sovereign. You're the kind of person that has to be convinced of each individual issue before you're going to obey, then you really don't understand the lordship of Jesus. 
A lot of people pretend to believe in the authority of the Bible, but they refuse to believe some parts of it. You can't do that. You can't do that. We cannot follow the authority of Jesus without the authority of Scripture because it's Scripture that teaches us and informs us about Jesus. We obey Jesus because he's Lord. We don't vote on each individual issue. For some of you, the issue is not what we're going to talk about today, even if, even if the issue rubs you the wrong way. It's really, it comes down to is the lordship of Jesus. You need to make a decision today. Is he Lord? And if so, then do what he says to do. To say that the Bible is authoritative is to say that it holds the final word. Listen, not science, although science complements Scripture, by the way. Not human experience. A lot of you will jump. You'll say amen to, to science, but science does complement Scripture. But in Pentecostal circles, where a Pentecostal church, this one might rub you the wrong way, it's, it's not human experience, although human experience complements Scripture, it's not human reasoning. Scripture, the Bible, always has the final word. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it, it states this, and I love it. It says, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which has ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. John Frame says this, divine authorship is the ultimate reason why Scripture is authoritative. Its authority is absolute because God's authority is absolute, and Scripture is his personal word to us. The God who spoke the universe to life with his words speaks to us through his Scripture. The Reformation called this sola scriptura. Did I say it right, Liz? I'm getting a wink. The Bible is the sole infallible source of authority for Christian faith and practice. The Bible is God's authoritative word. Since it is authoritative word, we're obligated to respond to it. In fact, our response to scripture is identical to our response to God himself. This is what the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 66, verse one through two. It says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Because of the authority of the Bible, we need, we need to respond with faith and obedience. Now, I know I harp on this. I know this is a lengthy introduction. I know I harp on this every single week, but it's so important for you to understand why we preach the Bible verse by verse. Because we live in a world today that is becoming more and more hostile towards biblical beliefs. There was a time in my life, even my life, and I'm a young guy, there was a time in my life that the secular world honored and respected Christian values. And... and even secular society were outraged by practices that contradicted the Bible, even in my lifetime, okay? And in some ways, you could even say that they were allies in protecting our, our children and our youth from what we would consider is wrong. This is no longer the case. Today, the outpouring on unchecked evil that someone's subjected to on a daily basis is outrageous. 
All secular media is dominated by this agenda that's pushing the world's philosophies on our kids. Today, we are truly, truly living in a moral desert. But here's the deal. You and I do not have to be discouraged. We have an example in Jesus Christ who also happens to be our source of life. Jesus showed us truth. He also showed us that he was into some serious weaponry. I know I'm in Ohio, so all you gun-toting guys, listen to this. Jesus was into weaponry, but not the kind of weaponry you think because he was more into spiritual weaponry. You and I are in a spiritual war today. And this is what I believe, and this is what I told the board when I first came here. It's the task of every pastor to make a conscious effort to introduce the Bible as the believer's greatest defense and offense against the world and our enemy. I still believe that. That's why Hebrews chapter 4, 12 says, the word of God is a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is why Jesus, who's the living word, told us to use scripture, the written word. The truth is that we are not facing things that the church hasn't faced before. The early church was constantly confronting hostile spiritual forces. And when we read the Bible, we see that they left an example for us on what's, what it's going to take from us, what's going to be necessary to be mature and victorious in an environment like we find ourselves today. Guess what it is? Teaching God's word. The teaching of good doctrine. The early church emphasized how important the daily teaching of God's word was to that first congregation. And the results, they were great. They were amazing. So the, world, the word of God spread. It's what Acts chapter 6 says. The word of God spread. That's our mission in life, to spread the word of God. The church knew that their only authority and power came from God and it came through the anointed word. So without a working understanding of the Bible today, even or every single disciple of Jesus is fatally, and I mean fatally vulnerable to all kinds of deception. And that's what we're seeing in the world today. All kinds of crazy teaching going on and people jumping on the bandwagon and believing anything and everything because they heard it on YouTube or they heard it on TV from this preacher. And I'll tell you what, the words of the prophet Hosea are just as true then when he said them then than they are today. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Knowledge. This is why I will spend 40, 50 minutes on teaching God's word every single Sunday. And there may be some here today that don't want to listen to what the Bible has to say about marriage. There may be some that are tuning in online that don't want to hear what the Bible has to say about marriage. They may be okay with coming to church. They may be okay with most of what the Bible has to say. But in regards to this topic, they just don't buy it. They might say this text is just so backwards. It's going back into this old chauvinistic patriarchy. And today I would challenge you to listen to God's word. I promise you that God's word, when applied, brings blessing. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it brings blessing. I love the quote from G.K. Chesterton. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. In our text today, Peter is going to discuss the duty of the Christian wife to her husband 
and of the Christian husband to his wife in verse 7. Now, some are going to say, why in the world would Peter spend six verses harping on the wife? And then he gives one verse to the man. I, I could see how you would ask that, and, and I'm going to tell you this. Now, you have to remember, we're going to talk a little bit about what the world was like when Peter wrote this, and he knew very well because what was happening, and I think it's still a trend today, there were more women in the church during Peter's time than there were men. Now, today, Barna Research says the same thing. We have more women in the church, more women volunteers in the church, more women doing things in the church than we do men. So let me just take, let me pause for a minute and say, way to go, ladies. And now let me say this, shame on you men. We'll get to you next week. But you have to remember that, that Peter knew very well that the conversion of a wife could be very dangerous for that lady in that culture. It caused some serious problems, and many husbands would look at that as shameful. If they had not come to the Christian faith, but their wife did, they would look at that as completely disrespectful. So Peter spends a little more time talking to the wife. The other thing you need to remember about this passage is he's actually talking to Christian women who are married to unchristian men. Now, that doesn't mean the, the principles that he's going to teach doesn't apply to Christian ladies married to Christian men. So you can't just check out immediately, but you do have to remember this. So what Peter's going to do... The, the major subject of chapters 1, probably verse 13, all the way to chapter 3, verse 12, is giving your life to God. So if a woman wants to give her life to God, then she has to give herself to her own husband. And Peter's going to give three examples of what that looks like in Christian marriage, okay? And I, again, I don't think we should ever, ever be frightened of whatever the Bible says. We serve a loving God who has our best interests at heart and he doesn't want to hurt us. He wants, to, he wants things to flow smoothly and he always thinks and wants the highest for us, always. So, so we never have to run away or shy away from the Bible, nor should we ever think that we need to manipulate the Bible to accommodate it, to make, to make it say whatever we want it to say. We have, we've been given the Bible. We should never be the ones to try to change the Bible, okay? So I'm... I'm not going to take this text that we're going to consider today, and I'm not going to use it to club or, or berate women. That's not going to happen today. Neither am I going to shy away from what the text plainly says. What I'm going to do today is endeavor to bring God's word to you and be true to the text. And I hope you've come to expect this, but it's to bring to you what the Holy Spirit has said through the pen of Peter. So take me out of this. Today is not about me. Today is all about God's word. Now, before we dive in, I told you it's a lengthy introduction, and that's okay, because if some of you are looking at it and thinking Justin's never going to get through, that's okay. This is such a profound truth that I'm not going to take it lightly. So I'm, I need to make sure that, that we understand all the details. So let me explain that 2,000 years ago in the Roman culture and the Greek culture, the Greco-Roman culture, the role of women publicly did not exist. And I talked about this a little bit in a previous book, but women were, were, did not have the rights that they have today, and that's why... And that was the society all around the time of Jesus. So women were excluded from Roman citizenship. They were placed on the level of a slave, of a child, and of a criminal. In early Roman law, men, husbands, had the right to sell their wives into slavery if they chose or to have them executed, capital punishment if they chose. 
One Roman statesman named Cicero said, our ancestors made it a rule that women, because of their weak intellects, should have guardians to take care of them. Can you see what women were up against 2,000 years ago? Women were not included in a census uh, for the population. They weren't, even, they weren't even included in the population. They didn't even count. And they didn't even bear their own names. Rather, they simply took the feminized form of their father's name. So if a dad's name was Julius, as in Julius Caesar, the firstborn would take the name Julia, her dad's name. If the dad had a second-born daughter, her name would often be Secunda, which just means the second. If he had a third daughter, Tertia, which just means the third. They didn't even bear their own names. Nobody asked a bride and a groom in that culture if they loved each other. Love each other? What's that? What does that have to do with anything? It's Tina Turner's song. It was so secondary because marriage was merely contractual. That was it. A cynical Roman sort of sums up this mentality, and I'm going to quote him. He says, marriage. Marriage brings only two happy days, the day when the husband first claps his wife to his breast and the day when he lays her in the tomb. That is the Greco-Roman culture of 2,000 years ago. You need to understand that. Now, let's leave that and shift to another culture going, in, going on at the time of the Jewish culture. That's, that's the culture of the New Testament. That's the culture of Jesus, the Gospels, Paul, etc. Theoretically, no nation had a higher ideal of marriage than Judaism. But while they maintained a high ideal of marriage, they had a very low ideal of women in general. A morning prayer that Jewish men prayed was this. Here's just a little part of it. But thank you, God, that you made me not a Gentile, not a slave, and not a woman. It's a prayer. Thank you, God, I'm, I'm not a girl. Thank you, God, I'm not a woman. Now, part of that in Judaism was because of two rabbis. I mentioned... I, I have not mentioned this yet, but Hillel was one of them and Akiba was the other, who believed that a husband can divorce his wife for any reason at all, and all he had to do was give two witnesses and a certificate of divorce, and just like that, she's gone. Whereas a woman had absolutely no rights whatsoever, least of all the right to divorce her husband. A woman could not divorce her husband unless he became a leper, an apostate, or engaged in disgusting trait. Other than that, she was bound for life, whereas a husband could not divorce, or whereas a husband could divorce and remarry and divorce and remarry at will. So in the Roman world, there was one, one instance of 24 wives a man had and one after the other. So you get it, right? This is crazy. This is insane. You read about this and you can't believe it, it was real, but it was. And this is the world that the gospel was written into. And we'll jump into that in a little bit. We'll talk about what Jesus did for, for women. But number one, here it is, giving yourself is an obligation. And we see this in verse one, the first part of verse one. It says, likewise, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, likewise means in the same way. So it refers back to the two previously mentioned examples of submission. Remember, Peter has told us to submit to government, right? And then he's told us to submit to our bosses. So likewise, in the same way, marriage, he says, is an earthly institution that God has set up to reveal himself and to provide stability. So there's this leadership component that God has given man to play in the home. We don't like that word subject. We've already learned what it means, but we've, 
It's the verb hubitasso, to rank under. So the apostle Paul under, or sorry, the apostle Peter under the Spirit's inspiration. Oh, no, I was right. I'm sorry. I'm going back and forth today. This is, this is a nerve-wracking nerve passage to preach. The apostle Peter, under the Spirit's inspiration, he taught the same thing. We see that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through 19. This is just one of many. But Paul said, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Sometimes we need to consider this, that this has nothing to do with women not leading the workplace or the government. Now, I've heard Christians abuse this text all the time and say women weren't born to be leaders. They can't be leaders. Uh, the Bible teaches so baloney. It's not what the Bible teaches. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. It has nothing to do with women not leading the workplace or the government or society. It doesn't say women be subject to men. It's not what it says. It only has to do with the home, and you need to understand that. Something else we need to understand is that wives are not told to be subject because they are inferior. All right? Nowhere in our text do we see that. In fact, we see the complete opposite. Peter says to the husbands, your wives are heirs with, with you of the grace of life. The promises and the privileges of salvation are equal. When God talks about the creation of male and female, he says male and female are both created in the image of God. So there's no hint of inferiority at all whatsoever. And some of you are already, you're jumping to verse 7. Well, what about the line about them being the weaker vessel in verse 7? Doesn't that imply inferiority? No, that's not what it means. And we're going to get to that next week. It's not what that means. Just like the previous examples, if you, if you have a government leader and you have, you're a citizen, you're to submit to your government leaders. Doesn't, doesn't make the government leader superior or a better person than the citizen. You need to submit to keep order in the society or in the workplace. A master over a servant doesn't mean that the master is any more intellectually better or superior or any other means. Loftier, whatever. It just... There needs to be order. So submission is what he's been teaching. He's building on this principle. He's now moving into the Christian home, what it looks like in the Christian home. When I get pulled over by a police officer, it in no way means that that police officer is in, more intellectually smart than I am. But he does have a place of authority in that situation, in that context, and I have to submit to his authority. A Christian woman and a Christian man are equal and again, I told you, in this particular passage, the context is that Peter is talking to Christian wives married to non-Christian men. That doesn't mean that the principle doesn't apply to all wives, because Paul taught the same thing. We see it, I already quoted him once, and I'll quote Paul again, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So the verse in Galatians just shows that God doesn't, he doesn't differentiate people based on their race, status, or gender. And though we are all equal as our inheritance as, as children of God, we're not all the same. There's no unisex teaching here. I want to be real clear about that too. That misses the whole point of the text. The Apostle Paul is not advocating a genderless ideology any more than he is promoting the idea that a Greek is now a Jew and a slave is now a free man, Okay. Instead, Paul is unfolding the richness of our equality in God's eyes. A part of the Bible that for years has been ignored and neglected. We're, we're all equally welcome, we're all loved, and we're all heirs. So we see submission in the Trinity too, just so you know. 
One God, three persons. They're all equally God, yet Jesus said that he was submitted to the Father. He said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. Equal in essence, different in role. Some of you are saying, well, Pastor Justin, you don't know my husband. He doesn't deserve my submission. And you just don't know what kind of man he is. That's missing the entire point, though. Hang with me. Your husband may not deserve your submission. There are a lot of husbands that don't deserve it. But Jesus does. Jesus does. Peter talked about our life being spiritual sacrifices. So you think of your submission to your husband as an offering to the Lord. Man, it's so quiet in here. Because remember, Peter's talking. He's telling Christian wives to submit to non-Christian husbands. What? How can a Christian wife submit her life to somebody who doesn't even submit their life to Christ? Well, first of all, I need you to know this. Doesn't mean that you can submit to him when he tells you to do something sinful against God's will. Okay? We've already covered that in in other examples of submission. We don't submit to the government when they tell us to do something that contradicts God's will or contradicts God's word. We don't submit to a boss when he's telling us to do something that contradicts God's word. And you don't submit to a husband when he's telling you to do something that contradicts God's word. You don't do that because it would be unsubmissive to, to God. So the idea of submit to a husband is to respond to him, to relinquish your rights that you might serve his, his needs. John Piper says it this way, the husband does not replace Christ as the, as the woman's supreme authority. She must never follow her husband's leadership into sin. But even where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can still have a spirit of submission. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she, she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake his sin and lead righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again, again produce harmony. Now, again, I've told you, this doctrine has been used so many times in the past to, de- to the detriment of, of women and children. So I want to address the wife who is being abused today. If you are in our church today or you are watching online and you are living in an abusive relationship, get out. Get out. Get out. You do not have to stay in that home and continue to submit to an abusive husband. That's not what the Bible teaches. Maybe you think that God's more more interested in preserving your marriage than the well-being of you and your children. Not true. Not true. You need to understand that God values marriage, but he's also concerned for your safety and sanity in the midst of a destructive or a dangerous marriage. Throughout the Bible, we see how God is our refuge. We see it in the book of Psalms. We see it in Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And in Proverbs, we read this, a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly and suffers the consequences. You do not have to stay in an abusive relationship. Sometimes wives think they need to endure abuse because they've been taught it's unbiblical or ungodly to to leave because that's not submitting. Keeping the family together at all costs is seen as God's highest value, but there are times when keeping the family together has an extremely high price for a woman and her children, and it can sometimes cost them their lives. And so sometimes staying together only enables the husband to continue to sin against them with no consequences, and that is not biblical. It's not biblical. God wants all of us to be safe, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, and God wants all of us to find refuge in him. 
okay? So I want to quickly review this before we go on. Here's what submission is not. We've, we've covered a little bit of it. Here's what submission is not. Number one, the dominance of the man. A wife does not exist as a servant in her house to cater to her husband's whims. Just a few verses after Paul's commands to wives, he tells the husband to lay down his life for his wife and love her as Christ loved the church. Okay? So it's not the dominance of man. Submission's not number two. It's not abusive relationships. I wish, we've, we've talked about it, but I wish we didn't need to say anything at all, but we do. When Paul says to submit to the husband as to the Lord, that means as a way of serving God, not in the place of God. So that means that if your husband tells you to do something that would make you disobey the Lord, or if his leadership ever, ever puts you or your family in harm's way, you need to get out of there and you need to get some counseling to help you heal. Number three, submission is not in all areas. Peter's command doesn't mean that all women everywhere should, should submit to all men as if, as if women can't lead. Paul's only talking about the marriage relationship, okay? And number four, using this verse as a tool to wield over your wives. Notice that this verse is addressed specifically to women. Men, it's her verse, not yours. I'm going to say that again. It's her verse, not yours. I love how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, said this. He says, it means you shouldn't quote it at your wife. It's hers to obey, not yours to demand. If she's not doing it, all you can do is be the kind of leader it would be a joy to submit to. You play your role and trust God with hers. Don't use this to beat it over your wife's head when she doesn't do what you want her to do or you've missed the entire context. All right. Biblical submission in marriage is a sign of strength. <sighs> Biblical submission in marriage is a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. It requires a great deal, a great degree of personal strength of character. Submission in marriage is a spirit of respect a wife has towards her husband. It's an attitude intended to help her and her husband to live more of a peaceful life together. It's not saying problems and disagreements between a husband and wife won't exist in marriage. Those are inevitable. We know it. But when a woman has an attitude of submission in marriage, a harder respect for her husband, it's much more likely the inevitable problems that come are going to be resolved without crazy fighting, without bitterness, without resentment. And that's not to say it, it will be so because the man dominates. The man gets his way all the time. That's not, that's not what Peter's teaching here either. Some people look down on submission as if it were something demeaning, degrading, or humiliating. In a biblical sense, that's not what submission is in marriage at all. That's not what Peter teaches. That's not what Paul teaches. Biblical submission in marriage is a wife making a choice not to overly resist her husband's will. That's not to say she can't disagree with him or that she can't express her opinion Man, for goodness sakes, a wife, a wife needs to do that. So I'm so happy that Liz does that. I'm so happy that Liz keeps me on the straight and narrow sometimes. Thank you, Liz. Man, I'm so glad she doesn't keep quiet all the time because she sees things a lot, a lot more clear than I see things sometimes. But a wife who practices submission is by definition a, women, a woman with strength of character. She'll usually have her own opinions and ideas about issues. These may often be different to the opinions of her husband, but she can express her opinions and ideas respectfully without belittling and without disres disrespecting her husband, without being confrontational. 
In fact, it might sometimes be wrong for her not to express her opinion. She is ordained by God to be her husband's helper, not his doormat. By expressing her opinions, giving advice, and offering suggestions, she will be an invaluable partner to her husband. I think it's funny when people say, Pastor Justin runs the church. He's the head. Well, I'll tell you what, my wife's the neck. (laughs) All right. Number two, he says, giving yourself is an opportunity. We see this in the last part of verse one all the way through verse two. I'll start with verse one again. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respect in pure conduct. Kind of the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, what word is Paul talking about? What word is he talking about? Some don't obey the word, God's word. In other words, the Bible. If a husband's an unbeliever, he doesn't believe in Scripture. He doesn't view God's word as authoritative the same way that his wife would. He don't care about obeying the Bible. It's not his priority. He's an unbeliever. But it continues to say, if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. Now, what word is that? He's talking about the wife's word here. Okay? They don't obey the word so that they can, without a word, Peter says, be one by the conduct of of their wives. And again, this doesn't mean that a wife has, has, has to never say anything. It doesn't mean that. And it definitely doesn't mean a wife doesn't present the gospel and preach the gospel. You guys remember the, the quote attributed to Francis of Assisi. He says, preach the gospel. By all means, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I loved that when I was growing up because the sentiment behind it is this, that, that one, we demonstrate the love and the generosity of the gospel by our lifestyle. I love it. That's all well and good. But the gospel is an announcement. It is, okay? It's an announcement about what Jesus did to save people, not a presentation of what a good person you are. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not a presentation of how good of a person I am. It's a a declaration of what Jesus did. So sharing the announcement is going to require words. Trying to share the gospel without using words is like watching a newscast with the sound turned off. Okay, you get it. Man, the newscaster, he's excited about something, but I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what he's excited about. Or it's like Pastor J.D. Greer says, sharing the gospel without using words is like, well, tell me your phone number, and if necessary, use digits. Phone number's made of digits. You need to use digits. So we get it, right? We understand to proclaim the gospel, you actually need to share the gospel. Peter isn't saying don't speak, don't use your words. He already said in chapter 1, verse 23, that we're born again, not by corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed. That's the word of God. So when he writes this to believing wives who were yoked to unbelieving husbands, he had in mind a wife who's already preached the gospel. Man, she's already shared the gospel. She came home from the tent meeting or the church meeting or whatever they had in those days, and she was excited, and she came home and shared with her husband. Now, I've been around this a lot in ministry. I've seen a lot more wives get saved than I have seen husbands. And when the wife gets saved, she is so excited. She wants to go share with her husband. And she makes every opportunity to share. And that's, that's good, but he still hasn't believed any of it. 
And she's even, you know, she'll go put tracks on the toilet seat. She'll put tracks in the Sports Illustrated magazines or the hunting magazines. She's, she'll tune all of his radio stations to the Christian radio station. She might leave, well, at that time it was the CDs of the pastor's sermon from Sunday. She might just leave it on, on the car seat. She's doing everything she can to lead him to the Lord, but he's still, he's not into it. He doesn't care. And Paul's talking to that lady. Not only, not only uh, he's saying, don't, don't just build a pulpit in your living room. That might not save him. You could bring home the pulpit and preach to him every night before he goes to bed. That might not work. Live a loving, submissive life before the Lord in all purity and godliness. So if your husband's not a Christian, they can be saved by the way that you live. Peter's counsel, be a good wife. Be a good wife. William Barclay called it this, the silent preaching of a lovely life. What an incredible description. The silent preaching of a lovely life. Augustine, who's a third century bishop in North Africa, this, this story is incredible. His mother, Monica, was a believer in Jesus. His mother came to the faith first. And his father was an unbeliever. And Augustine writes of, of this tension that existed in his home. And, and in one of his writings, he, he says this, almost as if it was a prayer. He writes what happened. He says, she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her so beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Is that not powerful? Is that not amazing? That is a powerful testimony. He was converted by her lifestyle that he observed over a course of a long time, the silent preaching of a lovely life. So her actions spoke louder than words. And we're going to, we're going to get into this last part, but don't worry. We're going to finish this next week. This is part one of part two. Next week, I'm talking to husbands. Next week, I'm talking to husbands because Peter has a lot to say to us too. But number three, giving yourself, he says, is an ornament. We see this in verse three through six. Starting in verse three, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Similar to what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, he says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or, or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, I grew up on the West Coast. I grew up on, in Seattle, Washington, and I had never come across somebody abusing this passage ever in all my life. The ladies in Seattle like to dress up, and they, you know. So I moved to, to Missouri to go to Bible college, and I was sitting there, and I've always liked to dress up. You know, I like to look good, I guess, or res at least uh, I like to look respectable. And I remember this, this lady coming in, and she was a student there, and she had come from a different 
uh, cultural background than I did, and I was sitting at a table with other girls that, because we were all studying, we were studying, and she <laughs> she came in, and, and this poor student across the table from me was wearing was was wearing designer clothes, and she had really nice hair and makeup on, and she had nice jewelry, and I remember this lady that walked in was not wearing makeup, didn't uh, have designer jewelry, and uh, her clothes looked a little different. I'd never seen clothes like that. It looked like maybe what you would see in the uh, 1800s, and she ripped into this girl, and it was the very first time in my life that I had ever heard somebody take this that perspective on this passage, you know, and she kept quoting these verses over and over. She kept quoting these verses. Well, the word adorning is the word cosmos. We get our word cosmetics from it. It actually means to put in order. So Peter's telling them to make the priority and the focus of their life, not the outward cosmetics, but focus on the, the hidden person of the heart. He's not, he is not prohibiting wives from wearing nice clothes and makeup. So I, when my wife and I were missionaries, we went to a church and, and this has broken my heart. And even to this day, when I think about it, I get angry. We were there and we preached. And after the service, a lady in pants came up. We were in the sticks in Missouri and this woman had walked in off the street. She was wearing pants. She responded to the message. She came and gave her life to Jesus at the altar. And this pastor got up and kicked her out of the church because she was wearing pants, quoting the scripture. Still, to this day, I mean, that was almost 13 years ago. I, I get real worked up when I think of it. We take scripture and we take it out of context so many times. Jesus said, don't labor for the food that perishes too. You remember when he said that in the gospels? Was he saying, we don't work for food? No, Jesus wasn't saying that people can't work for food. Neither was Peter saying women can't wear makeup and jewelry. I know some fundamentalists use this to say this is, this is a prohibition against braiding of clothes, putting on jewelry. But if we take that, if we, if we take their stance on it, it would also mean they can't wear clothes. And thank you for coming to church today wearing clothes. Okay, thank you. Peter was not, Peter was not promoting nudity. <laughs> it's not bad to want to look good. We admire beauty, we do. It's not sinful for a believer to want to make themselves look better. There's not a problem with that. And just so you know, this is something people have been doing for a long time. It goes all the way back into antiquity. They've done archaeological digs in Rome, and they found that 2,000 years ago when this was written, women dyed their hair with extravagant colors. They would like crazy colors. They also wore wigs. And even back then, the most popular wig, get this, was blonde. What is, it, what is with people and, and blonde hair? <laughs> and some of you might be thinking, well, man, those were just worldly war Romans, Pastor Justin. Nope, because here's the thing. They found these wigs in Christian catacombs too. So beauty and fashion was always a part of every culture. And even in the Bible, the bride in, in the Song of Solomon is complimented for, her, for the ornaments on her cheeks and the chains of gold around her neck and the beautiful sandals that she wore. It's not wrong to want to look good. 
It's not saying that women can't, should not wear makeup or dress or nice clothes. What it means is this, ladies, there is a way that the world tells you to be beautiful, which only focuses on the external, focuses on beauty and clothing, and the world will tell you that that's gonna give you power and significance. But Peter says there's this beauty that's better. And, and, and the good thing about this beauty that is it doesn't fade. It's imperishable. We work really hard to keep our beauty. Go into the store and find all these creams you can rub on your face to make sure you don't get wrinkles. And guys, this isn't just for girls because I'm obsessed with losing my hair. Can I just say that? I'm so afraid of it. I have nightmares. I tell Liz, I have nightmares that I wake up and I have a receding hairline. I just know it's coming. I know that it's gonna happen one day. I'm gonna lose my hair. And I go buy the shampoo that helps that supposedly to never happen. And I always rip on YouTube, but I've watched YouTube hacks of how to keep your hair longer. I don't wanna lose my hair. It's not just the ladies that wanna look good. We struggle with this too. But Peter says there's just beauty that's better. There's there's something that is imperishable and, and, and go for that beauty. And my wife is the most beautiful person in the world to me, she is. I think, I think physically she's beautiful. I still remember the first time I, I saw her, at least when we were adults, because I've known you since you were a little kid, but I still remember seeing her on that stage at Central Bible College and determining that I'm gonna marry that girl. And it was for spiritual reasons, kind of. She was praying. <laughs> it was attractive to me, but I thought she was beautiful. And nobody, nobody in the world makes my heart pump like she does. Still, after all these years of marriage, when she walks in the room, my heart starts bumping. She's beautiful. But she looks different from the girl I met 20 years ago. Was it 20? <laughs> Not that old. <laughs> A lot of life has happened since then, right? I don't look the same either, but man, I will be sitting in my backyard around our fire pit, and sometimes I'll just look across and see the fire glowing off her, and I'll think, man, she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Here's a girl who has given her life and her body to serve our family and me. That's this Christ-like beauty that goes way beyond the physical beauty. Glamour is something that she can put on and she can take off, but true beauty is always present. Glamour is corruptible, it decays, it fades, but true beauty from the heart grows more wonderful as years pass. And I'm telling you, I think my wife is more beautiful today than she was all those years ago when I first met her. She's beautiful to me. Some of you ladies, as you get older, you spend money on all kinds of things. And I can understand that I just told you I use certain shampoo. I'm very scared of losing my hair, so I get it. But if there is a Christ-like beauty in you that's ever deepening, that goes on forever, you won't need the other ones so badly. And that's, that's what Peter's talking about here. I've got to close because I've gone over. But I trying to explain this to my boys. Liz says, you need to teach this to the boys. They're not too young to hear this. Okay, I got Asher and Liam there and I'm, I'm telling them this. I'm telling them what kind of beauty that Peter was talking about. At the end of this, you know, Asher looks like he's about to cry. So I think the Holy Spirit's working on him and I'm excited. He's, he looks like he's gonna cry. 
So at the end of this, I say, Asher, you look like the Lord's doing something in your heart. And he goes, Dad, I'm willing to. That's what God wants. I go, huh? I go, what do you mean? He goes, I'll marry someone ugly if that's what God wants. <laughs> I said, no, you've missed, the, you've missed what I'm trying to say here. He goes, oh, thank goodness. Cause <laughs> I go, no, I'm telling you though, Asher, there's, there's something beyond physical beauty. And that's what you want. Liam is just looking at him and he doesn't understand anything we're talking about. But this part, I'll end with this. This part's to the guys. So I've talked to the ladies. This really, this verse speaks to both the men and the women. I've challenged the woman to make sure the inner part's beauty. To go after a beauty that lasts forever. And we love makeup at the church, please. I, I'm not, <laughs> next week, you don't wear makeup. but there's a beauty that's in here that Peter's telling you to go after. And guys, here's what I wanna to talk to you about today. Look for the real beauty, value real beauty. Stop putting pressure on your wife that she has to look like all that fake cosmetic junk that you see in the, in the grocery store, the magazine aisle value and cherish your wife because when your wife feels loved and cherished and valuable to her, she wants to look good for you. She wants to do that for you. Start appreciating and loving your wife. Amen? Oh, a few amens? Just a few? <laughs> We've only begun to scratch the surface and I'm gonna close in prayer because this is just a lot. I told you I was probably gonna go a little, little deep and might not even be able to get to all of it because this is so important today. World wants to tell us what marriage is. God has a definition of what marriage is. And when we follow God's definition, man, we live a blessed life. Marriage is one of the most amazing gifts that God could have ever given to us. So here's my prayer for you today, okay? I'm gonna pray that husbands go and cherish and love their wives, and I'm gonna pray that a wife submits to her husband and the home experiences peace that only God can give, and the world would look at us and say, man, what do they have that we don't? Amen? I told Pastor Enos I would do the connect card, and, and there's four steps that you can take. Begin a relationship with Jesus. I'm gonna pray if you wanna do that here in a minute. And we have had people watch online every week. I've started receiving Facebook messages from people giving their life to Jesus, just scrolling through the Facebook. Isn't that amazing? One of those that gave their life to Jesus and has been watching now for about six months wants to know how to become a member of the church, it's just all kinds of issues we're finding because they live in like South Carolina. So we're trying to connect them to a church, but, but it's, it's just what God has done has been amazing. Or the next step is make a fresh start with Jesus. Maybe you've, you've been serving the Lord your whole life, but you really feel like you need to kind of recommit to him. And, and then this, these are the hard ones. Third step, I'm gonna to commit to viewing the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament as authoritative. And number four, I'm gonna to commit to viewing marriage through a biblical lens. 
Again, you don't have to understand everything to make that commitment. You're just saying, Lord, you're Lord of my life. And I'm gonna commit to living biblical principles. Father God, we love you and praise you and worship you and adore you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can literally hear from you every single day of our life. If we would simply just open up our Bible and look to you. God, America is desperate for you right now. We have strayed so far away from your truth that our country is falling apart, yet you have called your church to stand up in such a time as this and be a voice for you. And so God, today we commit that to you once again. We commit to being people by the book. We're gonna live our lives according to your word. And you have, you and only you have the complete authority in our lives. God, we submit our lives to you as individuals and our church to you corporately. This is your church. This is your church, not my church, not any other pastor's church, not the board's church. This is your church. God, we want to see your spirit move again. So we recommit ourselves to your truth and your principles. And God, may your Holy Spirit move in our marriages, in our relationships with our kids. And may we start seeing healing. May we start seeing reconciliation. God, we want to see those things. In Jesus' name I pray. And for anybody here today who has never ever committed their life to Jesus. I want you just to look up at me and make eye contact because I just want to know who you are so I can pray with you. If that's you today and you have never given your life to Jesus, I want to pray with you today. I want to pray with you today. And if you're watching online, it's an easy step. You don't actually need me to pray with you. You can do it yourself right now, wherever you're at. If you're in a car driving, keep your eyes open, but you can pray this. If you're sitting on a couch, if you're eating at your breakfast table, you all you have to do is confess that Jesus is who he said he was, that you have sinned and fallen short, and that only through Jesus you can receive forgiveness. That's it. And Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to live and dwell inside of you and and you will be called one of his children. It's that easy. Father, we love you and praise you and give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.